0: So I want to talk to you about the idea of responsiveness. So I'll uh, tell you a little bit about my high school experience. When I was in high school, I had a really cool opportunity to be a part of something called the police Explorers, which sounds like a really advanced, like fun little adventurous name, right? I was a police explorer, and uh, and so what I did as a police explorer is actually I, I got trained to do a lot of things that cops have to do. I got I got trained in how they perform traffic stops. Uh, I got trained in uh, inactive shooter situations, how they have to address those kinds of things, and and then uh, one of the things I got trained in or I actually had the opportunity to do was I got to do ride-alongs with the cops. So I, I got to sit in the car with them and, and kind of see how they go about their business. Uh, and, and most of the time I was in the car from like 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. or sorry 8 eight uh, p.m. to 2 p.m. So I was in that, that night time frame. And as I was in there, I got to, to be a part of a, a bunch of different things. So that's one piece of my, my high school experience. The other piece of my high school experience was uh, I actually got trained as an EMT, an emerg- uh, emergency medical technician. Uh, I, I went through a class and I got to go through all the different things that EMTs have to go through to actually uh, respond to different medical situations. And so uh, when I got this, uh, this opportunity as an EMT, there are situations where you will have to walk into times when, when people will be unresponsive. So they won't, they won't actually be able to respond to you. And one of the things that you have to do is you actually, it's your job to be able to gauge their responsiveness so that when you get to the hospital or wherever you go, you'll be able to sort of give a number explaining this is how responsive this person is. And so, uh, so the more responsive someone is, the higher the chances that, that there will actually be success for this patient once they get to the hospital and that kind of thing. So we have this tool, the tool that they give us in the EMT class is called the, the Glasgow Coma Scale. And I'll, we'll put it up here on the screen for us. So you can't, you might not be able to see it, but, but what you have are different kinds of responses. So you have eye response. Do eyes open without verbal direction, or do they need verbal direction? Or, or when you speak, do they just stay closed? You're trying to evaluate those things. And so then you have a different category of like, How people respond? Do they respond to pain? So if they don't respond to your voice, do they respond to pain? So there's this really uh, fun tool that they gave us as EMTs to, to figure out if people respond to pain. You do this thing called a sternum rub, Uh, and if you don't know what that is, you take your knuckles like this, and you take it against uh, where the rib cage comes together, and you just do this really, really fast against their sternum, and if you try that to yourself, I'm watching, so don't do it right now, but if you try that to yourself, I promise you will be in pain. Um, Even even just that little bit that I did, I can still feel that. It, It causes a lot of pain, and people respond to that pain when they're coherent. And so, okay, so now let's bring these two worlds together. I was a police explorer, and I was on a ride-along one night, and uh, I, I was in the car. We were driving up to a four-way stop, and then right in front of us, a guy just, he completely blows the stop sign, goes right through it. And so, obviously, like, we had to pull the guy over, and, um, and he, was, he was drunk. And so we had to, we had to kind of you know, t- get him in the car. We had to take him in to process him. And so, so uh, while he was in the car, he fell asleep. And when we got to the station, he was unresponsive. So like we were, we were trying to get him to get out of the car. We were saying, hey, wake up. Uh, and he was just not responding at all. And so, so, so then we were like, both me and the police officer we were in the same emt class together and so we knew this this tool right we had to do the sternum rub on this guy and so we did it and the guy was still not moving no response whatsoever he was like full-blown near coma like was not at all responding and so so at the 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 station we actually were like but i think we have to take him to the hospital because he's not, he's not with us. And so, so this became a long, drawn-out process. And what we actually figured out is that uh, he, he was diabetic as well. And so his sugars were low and all of that kind of stuff. And, and, and so what had essentially happened was um, his drunkenness, the substance on top of his disease, had so um, made his body, it had hardened his responsiveness to where he couldn't even, even when we were like, giving him this really intense pain to wake him up, he couldn't wake up. There was, there was nothing that could affect his responsiveness. I so couldn't get him to be there with us. And the reason I tell that story is because the parable today is all about responsiveness. How responsive are we? How responsive are we to, to, to God's word? And so, uh, so Mark 4, 1 through 3, let's set up our parable this morning. He began to teach them beside the sea. Uh, Essentially what happens is that uh, the crowds get so dense around Jesus that he's talking and the people in the back can't even hear him. He has to actually separate himself from the crowd a little bit, get up on a boat so that people can see him when he's teaching. That's kind of what's happened. You get this, this impression that there are a lot of people gathered around Jesus at this point. So he gets on the boat, he goes out to the sea and... Um, And then he begins to tell this parable. Now, what we need to know about this parable is that this is very likely one of the first parables. In fact, it probably is the first parable that Jesus ever told. Uh, Mark records something like that for us. Matthew records something like that for us. In fact, if we looked in Matthew 13, we would see a parallel story. And this this is actually the parable that made the disciples ask, Jesus, why in the heck are you teaching in parables? Right, And we looked at that way back at the beginning of this series on the parables. We, we looked at Jesus' purpose for the parables. But, but the, the disciples are curious. This, this parable is just so confusing. There's, there's a lack of clarity here, and they're trying to understand what's, what's going on. And so if you wanted to look at the parallel story, you could read Matthew 13 and see that. Now, this parable has been called the parable of the sower. It's also been called the parable of the seeds. Uh, I think, though, what what probably a better title for it might be is a parable of the soils. Because because the parable is really all, it's, the the seed is consistent throughout. The sower is consistent throughout. The thing that is not consistent is the soils. The lesson that we're brought to learn from this is something about the soils. And so what Jesus is doing is he's using a, a concept that's really familiar to people. He's using a farming concept with them to try to draw them into their story, to captivate their imagination, to help them understand what his ministry is about. And so real quick, I want to talk about the role that this parable plays in the book of Mark because because it stands at the very beginning of the book of Mark. And what it helps us understand, it helps us understand three things about Jesus really clearly. First of all, this parable introduces us to Jesus' ministry of the word. So Jesus goes around and teaches different things to different people. He has a lot of things to say, right? And so at the beginning of the book of Mark, this parable stands and tells us kind of what Jesus is doing. He's like a sower who is casting seed. He's throwing seed out for for different people to receive. And so, so the second role that this plays is it actually introduces us to the people that Jesus ministers to. It gives us categories for the different kinds of people that Jesus talks to. It helps us to to maybe even process, and this is the third point, to process ourselves. To evaluate ourselves in light of these different examples that he gives. To see, do we see ourselves anywhere in this story? So this morning is actually really, really simple. It might be the simplest uh, I've ever preached. Uh, We're going to just take a look at each soil. And... The awesome thing is, this is one of the few parables that like Jesus actually gives us an explanation for, right? That makes my job really, really easy. So I just, I just get to tell you, this is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus says about this parable. This is what he has to tell us. And, and this is what I want us to do. As we walk through each of these different soils, I want us to evaluate ourselves. So, we're going to look at response. We're going to look at each of these soils in the category of response. The first response is hardened and unyielding. You notice I put a question mark up there. And the reason I put a question mark up there is because uh, Jesus's goal, my goal, Mark's goal, when he puts this in his gospel, is that he wants us to evaluate ourselves. He wants us to ask these questions of ourselves. Are we hardened and unyielding? Mark 4, 4. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. So why is the guy throwing seed on the road? That's the first question that I have. If if his job is to plant seed in, in his garden or in his field, what in the world is he doing throwing the seed on the road? And uh, so, just so you understand, like, what a, what a sower, what a farmer would do in, in uh, the first century world, uh, they used this method called broadcast sowing. So, what they, they did is they just threw as much seed as they possibly could in as many places as they possibly could uh, in hopes that they would get a high return. Now, what they did after that process is that they actually had to go and plow the field. They went and plowed the field. So what that means is that when it gets thrown on the road, the road never gets plowed. So, so people walk along the road. The road actually gets really, really hard. It's, it, it, it becomes a place So you throw the seed on it, and the seed kind of just sits there. It stays there. Nobody ever plows the seed into the soil. And so, um, so there's still actually, if the seed stayed there, if, the, if it stayed there, there might be hope for it taking root or for, for it having some effect on the road, for it actually doing something. But what happens? The birds come along. The birds make sure that the seed doesn't stay on the road, right? Because they're hungry. They have, to, they have to get it up off of the road. Okay, so Jesus, what does this mean? What are, you, what are you trying to tell us here? Verse 14. The sower sows the word. Okay, so the seed is the word. Jesus wants us to understand the thing that I'm casting, because he sees himself as the sower in this parable. The thing that I'm casting, the thing that I'm throwing out here, the thing that I'm, I'm putting to take root is the word. The words that I speak, the commands that I give, the reminders that I give, the calls to repentance that I offer, the different things that I'm saying, all of this falls into the category of the seed, and I'm just broadcasting it as much as I can. And these are the ones along the path, verse 15, where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So I want to talk, uh, keep talking about the word. When the word, it takes root, it produces fruit. Um, in, in this case, we're talking about grain, right? So when the word takes root, it grows up and it produces some sort of product for us, right? Uh, and in this case... It's going to produce wheat. And now Jesus, in and, and multiple places in Scripture, you see, you'd see talking about producing fruit. And when it's talking about producing fruit, it's tem- simply talking about the result of the word that is being planted. What comes out of that? And so, so I want to talk about what the fruit of that word is. It's response. So when Jesus says something, do people respond? And re- what is response? Well, response is faith. Confidence, a trust, a willing to believe that Jesus is true in what He says, He and what He's saying. So that's faith. That's the fruit of the word that is planted. And so then He goes and He identifies his group of listeners for us. This first group of listeners, this hardened path, this place where the seed sits and it can't ever take root. It kind of just bounces off. Right. And that's the Pharisees, the the people who have made up their mind about Jesus already, who've already decided that they don't want to listen to anything he has to say, who have already decided that they have everything in themselves that they need. This is a, these are the kind of people that Jesus is talking about. So he's identifying this sort of first group of people, the people who don't want to respond to him at all. And so today, I think we, uh, we don't really have Pharisees today, right? Uh, but I think we do have a category of people that we could identify. We could identify this group of people for us as the self-righteous person. This is the self-righteous person. So I want to talk about, and this is what we're going to do with each of these kinds of people that Jesus gives us, is we're just going to identify what do these people believe? What, what, what makes it so that they are so hardened, they are so unable to receive the seed that Jesus is sowing? So this is the self-righteous person, and this is what they believe. First thing they believe, I can see rightly without God's vision. I can see rightly without God's vision. So I already already have in front of me everything I need. I don't need God to reveal anything to me. I don't need God to show me anything because the reality is I have everything in myself to see as I need to see already. And this was the Pharisees' attitude with Jesus. Jesus said things that they were not understanding correctly. And instead of responding to Jesus and saying, okay, Jesus, maybe I should, I should let you instruct me, uh, what they did is they made up their minds that were, they were going to kill Jesus. Right? They didn't want to have anything revealed to them. The second thing the self-righteous person believes, I can achieve rightly without God's help. So the Pharisee, the, the self-righteous person, what they believe is that I, I'm a pretty good person. I have in myself everything I need to do right and good in the world. In fact, if God, you know, whether or not he's real, whatever it might be, if God saw me, he'd probably be pretty impressed with me. He'd probably be pretty satisfied with how I'm doing. Yeah, we all aren't all perfect, and I'm not saying I'm a perfect person, but, you know, generally I think I do pretty good, right? So I don't have, I I can achieve rightly, I can do right, without God's help at all. The third thing, the self-righteous person believes. I can know rightly without God's instruction. So I don't need God to tell me anything. I don't need God to help me understand anything because the reality is God doesn't have anything to offer me at this point that I don't already have in myself. The fourth thing, they believe. There is nothing that God can give me now that I can't already get myself. There's nothing God has to offer me. There's nothing I can learn. There's nothing he can help me grow in. I I already have access to everything myself. So, So those are the basic beliefs. I want to identify underneath all of those a core belief, a core belief that kind of guides all of this. And that core belief is this. Whatever God has to say, I don't need to hear. Whatever God has to say, I don't need to hear. So so each of these beliefs up here is actually another layer of the hardened soil that surrounds a person's heart, right? That actually, like when, when God casts his word there, like it just bounces off. It doesn't take root. It doesn't take effect. It doesn't even have a, a chance to, to make an effect. Each of these beliefs, beliefs make sure that, that the word doesn't produce anything in these people. So there are really, um, I think we can think of The self-righteous person is if they're a religious person. And there are certainly religious self-righteous people. But there's also irreligious self-righteous people. There are people who don't believe in God who are still self-righteous. So let's talk about these two groups. I want to talk about the religious self-righteous person. This is the person that plays the bare minimum game. So the person that says, um, you know, God, I went to church this week and uh, I think I'm doing pretty good. Or, hey, God, um, back, way back when, when I was like 12 years old, you know, I prayed that prayer to accept Jesus in my heart, and I'm just riding that wave. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride that out. Um, I did, I kind of played my bare minimum. I did my thing, and uh, I'm going to kind of live how I want now, right? So that's, that's another example of self-righteousness. Look at this action that I did way back then. I'm going to rely on that action that I performed, my own work, to, to get me through. I, I've performed my bare minimum. Now, that's, those are like low examples of bare minimum. The Pharisees p- played the bare minimum game too, except they set the bar really, really high, right? So like all 614 commandments or whatever it is, they're like, you got to do every one of them. And if you do every one of them, you're good. You're taken care of. So as long as you make sure that you, to check the box, that's the least that you have to do to get there. So that's what the religious self-righteous person does, and what it does is it completely relies upon what I, as a person, am able to do to earn my favor before God. But then let's talk about the irreligious self-righteous person, the person who doesn't have religion. So uh, I get the opportunity to preach often. Uh, amazing, I know. Uh, but I, 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 um, at funerals, um, is a really hard time for some people because... Like, I have to talk about the gospel. I have to talk about the realities uh, that are presented with us at the end of life, when we get to meet with God. I, I, I get to talk about joy for some people that they get to experience because they know Jesus. They get this opportunity to now be with God in heaven, to know who he is. But then the implication of what I'm saying, and I can see a bunch of people processing it, is They're saying, okay, so you're saying, if I don't know Jesus, that means I don't receive that, right? And I can watch those people process, and I can actually watch them be frustrated with me. Now, it's not everybody in the room, but there are a few people. Uh, In fact, last summer I did this, and there were a few friends from high school that I had there. and, And I was just talking very plainly about... You know, the opportunity that God gives us for faith in Jesus, the opportunity that God gives us for life, for the promise of eternal life, that this person had. And I watched the word like bouncing off of these people because they weren't interested in receiving it. God had nothing for them that they could not already get themselves. And so when someone's heart is in this place, it's actually a, a, a really dangerous place to be because what that What that ensures is that the enemy will just come and take away every opportunity for the word to break into that person's heart. Satan comes and he ensures that the word doesn't stick around too long for that person because if it does, it might actually start to till up that hard soil. And he's he's basically delivering that person over to what they've already convinced themselves of, which is I don't need God. And so that's, that's the reality of the soil. And so Satan comes along. He ensures that the, the word never sticks around long enough to break through. Okay, so that's the first category of person that Jesus is talking about, the first category of response that he identifies. And he's looking at the Pharisees in particular in this, and, and, and he, he's concerned about their response. All right, second response. Absorbed but flaky. All right. Mark 4 5. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And then when the sun rose, it was scorched. Since it had no root, it withered away. So I used to work as a landscaper, um, which is not a joyous job to do in the middle of summer, but it was the reality of my life. And so, uh, so sometimes what we would have to do is we would have to take our rakes and our shovels, and we'd have to go dig holes for a little bit, right, to, you know, for multiple reasons, usually is because we're planting trees or something like that. Uh, Every once in a while, we'd end up in a spot that would be utterly frustrating, that would make you very angry because you're sweating already, and then you're trying to dig these holes, and then as you, you the soil looks good on top, but then as you stick your shovel into the ground, what you discover is that there is like a layer of rock underneath the soil, And it's really, really frustrating when all you can get is just this little bit of soil off the top. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying you can't get deep underneath the soil because there's this layer of rock underneath it. And apparently this was a common experience for farmers as well. They would go out and they would cast their seed, and initially the plants would grow really, really well. In fact, it it appeared that they were growing even maybe better than the rest of the plants And and so the roots, though, the roots, what happened is because there were rocks under the surface, the roots actually couldn't go underneath the rocks, which is, by the way, where all the nutrients go down, where where most of the water, the the water goes down deep into the soil. The roots are down there to, to bring the water back up to get life for the plant. But because those roots can't go deep, the plant can't actually get life. And so now a guy with a seminary degree has given you all a science lesson. All right? So <laughs> congratulations. That's not... Uh, I, I, don't ask me to do that often because I'm not going to be able to. But uh, the lack of deep roots for, for these plants leads to a dried up crop. And so verse 16, these were the ones who were sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves. But endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. So uh, the next two soils identify for us the crowds, the crowds that follow Jesus around. These are the people who are really interested in Jesus. You know, Jesus knew a few things. He knew that to these people, he was sensational. To these people, he was really interesting. In fact, he performed miracles, he did healings, he he said some pretty incredible things, and people wanted to be around him. But Jesus also knew something else. He knew that his teachings would disrupt the, the, the social system in a major way. He knew that the things that he said, the things that he asked people to do, would cause the people who followed him to be excluded. And not just excluded, but eventually, those people would be thrown in prison for following him. Eventually, those people would be killed for following him. And he said as much, that these are the kinds of things that his followers would have to face. And so so he knew that there would be a whole group of people who, even though they were really interested in Jesus, really excited about the things that he offered... When they followed him and it caused them trouble, he knew that many of those people would fall away. By the way, Mark, the, 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 Mark, the gospel writer, he's writing to a group of people who were starting to fall away a group of disciples, a group of Jesus followers in this time after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's writing to the church, and he's including this parable in here. And and what you have with the inclusion of this parable is a little subtle reminder that, hey, don't fall away. Jesus talked about this. This is what he said. This persecution, this trouble is going to come. This is a result of following Jesus. Don't fall away. Stick with it. And so, uh, so this, is, this is part of the crowds that he's talking to. I want to identify for us. For us, this is probably the people pleaser. Um, and I will tell you, I'll identify myself first in this category. I was, you know, early on in my faith, I was probably among the people pleasers. I was probably among those who was not really forward about my faith, was afraid, in fact, of what people would think of me if I were, were a Christian or if I were, um, you know, open about my faith. So let's talk about what the people pleaser believes. The people pleaser believes that Jesus is great unless that offends someone, right? So Jesus is good. I'm happy with Jesus unless you're offended because I want to protect your feelings. I want to make sure you're okay, right? Okay, so that's what they believe. This is, so uh, sometimes this happens, uh, you know, if, we're praying, we're saying a prayer. And so sometimes people, and I do this too, so it's okay. They're not calling anybody out. I'm just saying this is a fact for what it is. We'll say at the end of our prayers, uh, in your name. Well, in whose name? In, well, in Jesus' name, right? And I'm not saying that every prayer, you have to end every prayer in Jesus' name. But actually, what's really interesting, if you look at liberal Churches in particular, uh, churches that are, are, are more along the lines of let's make everybody feel comfortable, uh, what happens is you'll have them end prayers with in your name. So as the intention of that is so that they don't offend anybody, so that they don't create any barriers right Um, and so I experienced this even when I was I was at a prayer breakfast recently here in in the town of Bartlett and uh, the prayer was ended in your name even though the person was a Christian was a you know a Jesus like uh, following Jesus a pastor uh, for Jesus' church they ended in your name so as to intentionally not exclude the other people around the table and so uh, so that's that's just something interesting now you know Jesus is great unless that offends someone the second thing that the people pleaser believes, says, I love Jesus, uh, just not some of his words. So I love everything about Jesus, you know, uh, except that time when he says, "No one comes to the Father except through me," or except that time when he said, "Hey, like if if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, like that's that's pretty harsh words." And of course, he's not saying like. You need to hate them, but, but in your allegiance to Jesus, it might be as though you hated them, right? If that causes divisions between you and your parents, if your allegiance to Jesus causes divisions for, for that, so be it. He talks about things like fire and like judgment. He says things like, if your foot causes you to sin, you should just lop it off and throw it in the fire, right? Right? He says the world will hate you because it first hated me. So these are not like pretty things that Jesus says. So, so some people say, okay, I love Jesus, but some of his words, and they, you know, so, honestly, some of them are hard to, to swallow. Okay, third thing. The people pleaser believes I will follow Jesus until I have to pay the social cost for doing so. So, actually in the United States for a long time, it was socially beneficial to be a Christian. It was socially a good thing. You could actually earn yourself some points in society for having on yourself the label Christian. Today, we are in a situation where if you have the label Christian on yourself, it is no longer socially beneficial. In fact, it is becoming more and more uh, challenging for the person who has the label Christian for yourself because people make all of these assumptions about you if you're a Christian, and then you kind of have to carry the weight of that. So, uh, so we're actually getting there to a place in society where the social cost is going up, and I think what's probably going to happen is that um, you'll see a lot of people who are people pleasers. Um, and I give it 20 years or so, but but people who are not really true or excited or, or wholly sold out to the faith will start to fall away. And and you're even seeing it in the data that's existing right now. You're seeing people who identified as loosely religious starting to mo- move more and more to identifying as, as the nuns, right? The people who uh, don't have any particular religious identification. So... Uh, so the, the, the core belief of the people pleaser is this. Faith shouldn't rock the boat. So faith is good and all. Faith is great to have. Everybody can have, kind of have their own faith. It's good for us. But listen, we've got to lay down some ground rules. It just can't, can't rock the boat of any place. Okay. So Jesus is saying that these people have rocks in their soil, that the root actually can't get down deep. The next response. And uh, again, Jesus is talking about the crowds with this response alive but infected. Mark 4, 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no grain. So this is what happens. Weeds take nutrients from the soil. They steal water from the plants. They, they make sure they sometimes even spread diseases. Right? They leach the life out of the plant that they grow around. And particularly the ones with thorns, they grow around the plant. They choke the plant out. They make sure that the plant can't survive. So Jesus tells us what this means. Verse 18, it says, others are the ones who sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So Jesus knew that there, there would be people who appeared to be following him, but at the end of the day, they would have a greater faith in, belief in, allegiance to something else besides Jesus. That, that they even appeared to, to love him, to cherish him. I think of Judas in this in particular, right? They appeared to be with him, but at the end of the day, their, their wholehearted allegiance was to something else. And this person is the holdout. The holdout believes, first of all, my sin of choice offers better benefits to me than Jesus does. So I don't know what that sin of choice might be, but um, I know that whoever the person is has heard Jesus state clearly that it's not okay to do that. And what that person believes is that um, if I continue going down that road, that it's all going to be okay. But eventually what happens is that desire for that sin, it grows so big that it actually overrules Jesus in that person's heart. The second thing that the holdout believes. My material comfort and security is what's most important. Right? That's why, and we talked about that a little bit last week with, with talking about wealth, the, the role that wealth can play in our lives, but, but making sure that I'm comfortable and secure is what is most important. It takes priority even over what Jesus might ask me to do. The third thing that the holdout believes is as long as Jesus is one priority amongst others, he doesn't have to be the priority in everything. Okay, so as long as I generally believe in Jesus, and that is like one chunk of my life, then I'm kind of good. I don't have to carry that with me into every part of my life, right? This is what the holdout believes. Now, the core belief at the bottom of that is this. Jesus can ask anything of me except blank. So what's the blank? That's the, that's the thing that we would have to fill in, but But Jesus can ask anything of me except blank. So now you might might hold these kinds of attitudes. And um, and somebody, I don't know who it might be. It may not be you. You might know somebody in your life that holds these kinds of attitudes. And what Jesus is saying with clarity is that those people, they will appear to be my true followers. But at the end of the day, they're going to fall away. Which is why Jesus tells us this like, really scary thing. Like, you know, Some people are going to come to me at the end of the day, and they're, they're going to say, Lord, Lord. They're going to appear to be followers, to be believers of me. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty things in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Right? Because there was something else that took priority in your heart. There was something else that was lording over you. you. It appeared to be me at the time, but apparently you were holding out for something else. Now, let's talk about reality for a second. Jesus has four different soils that he's, he's talking about. He's identified for us three of them three of the soils, okay? And so this is exciting because three of those soils, three of those different kinds of people that he has identified prove to be ineffective. So the implication is, you know, we have four kinds of people and three kinds of people, three of these different groups that Jesus is identifying. He's saying that three of those groups of people are never going to see the life that he has to offer because their primary allegiance is to something or someone else. Now, that's not comfortable reality for us to live in, but that's what Jesus indicates. And I tell you, I don't like, I have, I didn't like just go through the parables and decide, you know, I just want to spend a few weeks preaching on judgment. You know, like, I just, like, it's just what's there, right? I was like, okay, here's some parables, like, and we have to deal with them. We have to deal with what Jesus is saying. Uh, You know, if I had my choice, I'd like to, like, preach about hope and, like, joy that we have in Jesus. But the reality is, is much of what Jesus says refers to to judgment, to, to how people respond to him, right? And that's something that we have to deal with. Okay. All right, so let's look at this last kind of soil and then figure out what Jesus has to say about it. This is, this is the hope. This is the hopeful peace for us. Mark 4, 8. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what happens? The farmer tills the soil. The farmer casts the seed. Then he tills his field. And in this field, the place where the soil is good, you actually have a massive level of production. It starts bringing forth grain in huge proportions. It actually grows tall. It adds value to the farmer's field. Okay, Jesus, tell us about This soil. What do you want us to see about this soil? Verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. This is the responsive person. The person who, when they hear the word, they know They know that responding to the word is their only hope. So this is what the responsive person believes. The responsive person believes, firstly, that every other pursuit of this life leads to a dead end. So whether it be wealth, they know that wealth at the end of the day, that the the Lord could call their life up at any moment, and their wealth would have no power to actually save them. They know that fame is a vain pursuit, that fame is only for themselves, that it comes out of their heart, that it actually doesn't do anything for them, that their pursuit of a career, while it might be good, that their career at the end of the day has no eternal value, that, that pleasure, that pursuit of pleasure, that, that pursuit of success, that even, even pursuit of family, that at the end of the day, those things are not the things that save us. Now, here's the reality. Let's talk about career or work or even family or, or success. All of these things are things that can be incorporated in to a God-honoring pursuit, to a Jesus-honoring pursuit. So when the, your career actually becomes a tool for how you honor Jesus, that you share your faith in your workplace, that you have an opportunity to, to make a place better because you're there, that's, that's a really good thing. Your career can be incorporated into your faith. But when those things become primary, when those things become what's pursued instead of or over Jesus, these people know. The responsive person believes that these things lead to a dead end. The second thing that the responsive person believes. Obeying Jesus' word is always to my benefit. So, uh, so I, I'll tell you a story about myself. I had a perception of Jesus and his commands that said that he just kind of wanted to take my joy away all the time. Right? I had a perception of Jesus that actually, like, I believed that God's commands were meant to restrain my enjoyment of life. So that, so that when, I, when I didn't pursue God's commands, when I pursued my own heart, that was the path that, that led to joy, right? I actually believed that. And what God had to do is he had to come in and rewire my thinking so that I actually, like, I saw that his commands were good for me. That they were beneficial for me. That he wasn't trying to keep me from enjoying life, but he was actually, like, trying to lead me into abundant life, Right? So I believe that that Jesus' commands are always to my benefit. The third thing that the responsive person believes is that my life brings forth great value when I respond positively to Jesus. My life brings forth great value when I respond positively to Jesus. And that's the point of the parable. Like, we might look at... like. Well, you know, am I a 30-fold gifting kind of person? Am I a 60-fold or am I a 100-fold? Like, that doesn't matter. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that the responsive person produces. The responsive person, out of their life comes all of this fruit. Fruit that actually you would never expect to see because the, even 30-fold is an extreme level of production, right? Right? All of this stuff is happening. It's coming out of this person's life. They're bringing forth great value when they respond positively to Jesus. The core belief here, and actually the point of the whole parable is this. Only Jesus' way leads me to life. The core belief of the responsive person is only Jesus' way leads me to life. So then right in the middle of the passage, we, we get this scene that actually illustrates for us the point. Because we see the responsive people have a conversation with Jesus. So in verse 10, it says, When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables So so let's talk about this. Jesus is alone now. What that means is that every other person has gone away. When Jesus has given this this parable, and maybe it was because the people didn't understand. Maybe it was because they didn't really want to understand. But everybody just kind of left. They didn't stick around. They weren't interested. But there was a group of people. And it says, with his disciples, which means it's more than just his disciples in this case. There's a group of people who are actually interested in what Jesus had to say, who actually wanted to understand, who actually desired to respond with their hearts. And what this this piece in the middle of this passage is, is a clear illustration to us of how a person responds when, when Jesus has given them good soil in their heart. And they get to hear Jesus interpret this parable. So you want to hear something crazy? We get to hear Jesus interpret the parable too. Like we don't have to stand here in confusion and wonder, oh, I, th- I wonder what he really meant by that. I guess I'll go home. No, like we, like we get to hear Jesus tell us exactly what he meant by this, which means he has given us an opportunity. He has given us a chance to respond. That even if we were in the first kind of soil, the self-righteous person, that if we were sitting in here this morning, we get an opportunity to hear Jesus explain exactly what he meant when he was talking to that self-righteous person. Which means that in reading this gospel, we get a chance to respond. We get an opportunity that the original listeners who left, that they didn't get. We get to hear the warning that they didn't get. And so the question that we're all responsible for answering now is, okay, so now that Jesus has given us the explanation, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? Okay, so what? I've got two. Two this morning. First of all, what if I can't change my soil? So uh, I'll tell you a brief story about myself. I was a dumb kid in college who did not know what he was doing. And I believed I knew better for me than what God knew for me. And so I followed my own desires. I kind of did my own thing. Believing God, you can't possibly know what is good for me. Uh, And then I realized that that was really dumb. So then what I did was I started praying, God, my heart is not in a position where I even want to do the things that you want me to do. I don't want to respond to you, but what I started doing is I started asking God, so if, you, if this is going to happen, if I'm actually going to follow you, then you're going to have to change my heart. You're actually going to have to till up the soil of my heart. If you want me to be responsive to you, you have to do something inside of me to change me. And so I started asking him, God, would you change me? And so that's one piece of it. And then I actually like, had to start interacting with Scripture on a daily basis. And you know what happens as you start to interact with Scripture on a daily basis? Like God actually like, That's like a tiller that God is just like, running over your heart, over that hard soil as much as he can because he's showing you consistently how much you fall short. But he's not only doing that. He's showing because you're following me, because you're with me, this is the grace that I offer you. So he doesn't just till you up and show you how wrong you are, but he shows you his mercy and he lavishes his grace upon you because he wants you to respond. And so through that process, through constantly reading scripture, through letting it till up my heart, through getting into it, what happened is that God began to change me. Right? And so, like, so many of you could tell the same story. That because you submitted yourself to God, you simply said, Lord, I can't do it. I can't change my soil, but you can. You know how He started to till up your heart, you know how He started to work inside of you, and He started to change you. So ask God and then start interacting with Scripture. The second, so what? What if sometimes I'm unresponsive? So I'll tell you a secret. Sometimes we all are unresponsive. Sometimes we all are in a place where we're believing something that we shouldn't believe, and that leads us to not respond to Jesus the way that he desires us to. And that's why we don't just, like, get Jesus' grace at the beginning uh, from our salvation, like we believe in Jesus' grace, and now we're like perfect for the rest of our lives, right? You no, know, that's why we actually have to consistently, every single day, lean on Jesus' grace. Because without it, we would be lost. Without it, we would be that unresponsive person, right? And so this, this, this actually brings us to a place where we have no choice, where we say the only thing that is good for our soul is knowing that Jesus is taking care of us. But then, so that's if, if we are all sometimes unresponsive, but then actually, like, we're called to do something. And that's what this passage is about. It's written to, to followers of Jesus. It's written to peoples, people in the church. And the call is, if you are unresponsive, you have an opportunity. To repent. If you know Jesus is calling you to something, you have an opportunity to turn and start doing the things that He wants you to do, to start responding to Him.